who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Singularity by Bill DeSmet. Copyright 2004 by William H. DeSmet. All rights reserved. Chapter 19. Party Animals The first inkling Knox had that Mariana was back safe and sound was when she stuck her head in the door connecting their cabins. Come in here, John. We need to talk. There was some weird shit down there. He stepped in and stopped. She was pacing up and down, unable to keep still. Are your microelectronic wards still in place? Her agitation was making him nervous. She walked into the bathroom to double-check. The base unit's reading all phase inverters in the green. Little Mr. Waterpick's playing night sounds for the benefit of our listeners. It's rigged for a separate audio feed, too. Want to hear what we sound like? If Knox didn't know better, he'd have said she sounded high on something. Stereo snoring? No thanks. He spoke too late. Mariana had already hit a concealed switch on the Waterpick recharger. The air was filled with audio of indifferent fidelity, but fabulously prurient content. Was that supposed to be him and Mariana? Whoever Crom had hired to make the recording, they sure sounded like they'd enjoyed their work, and they sure didn't sound like lawyers in love. Mariana blushed and switched the sound back off. Whew, distracting. Countermeasures really outdid themselves this time. Knox's clever comeback died unspoken, slain by the look on her face her lovely face, the brown eyes wide, the glossy lips barely parted. He became aware that he was holding his breath, conscious that the two of them were standing there, inches apart, not speaking, as the seconds ticked by. He reached out. Something flared in her eyes. Listen, Mariana, he began, just as Mariana pounced. This was the kiss he'd been fantasizing about, and a whole lot more. Mariana was all over him, pressing herself to him as though life depended on it. Her outfit might scramble light rays, but judging by the enthusiasm with which she was rubbing against him, it seemed to pass other sensations just fine. Not that that mattered, she was halfway out of it already. God, I hope you're straight, John, she gasped. Rather than wait for confirmation, she slipped a hand inside his pants. Oh, guess that's a big yes. Gut protection? 
Night table, my room, he managed. They maneuvered each other through the connecting door, down onto his bed. Like the take-charge lady she was, Mariana preferred to ride on top. Knox took advantage of the, for him, unaccustomed underdog position to fondle her petite, beautiful breasts. Not for long, though. Mariana would brook no distractions as she worked to scratch her sudden itch. Gripping his hands with unexpected strength, she wrested them from her nipples as she reared back, sliding to and fro, urging, no, ordering him, on and on. She pumped him dry, but had yet to find release herself. Discarding the spent condom, she erected him again with fingers, mouth, and force mayeur, then resheathed him and re-impaled herself. For Knox, the experience had gone beyond sex by now. It was more like being assaulted by a multi-featured vacuum cleaner, one with the optional clawing and biting attachments. After what seemed an eternity, she became utterly still, quivering, aglow with the endless incandescence of her orgasm. Mariana sat up and looked around in the dark. Quietly, careful so as not to wake John, she lifted back the coverlet and lowered her feet to the floor. The time display on the wall read 2.52 a.m. Its dim blue digits cast just enough light to make out where her jumpsuit lay discarded at the foot of the bed. She bent to retrieve the garment, then rose and tiptoed to the connecting door, breathing shallowly as she could, the reek of her own musk in her nostrils. Slipped through into her stateroom, and without looking back, eased the door shut and locked it behind her. Into the bathroom. Shower on full force. Only then, when she was sure she couldn't be heard from the other room, did she allow herself to burst into tears. The morning sun shone through the curtains. Knox rubbed the sleep out of his eyes and rolled over. He reached out an arm in drowsy anticipation of finding Mariana's slumbering form beside him, but encountered rumpled, unoccupied bedclothes instead. He stretched and looked around him. Mariana was gone. The door to her stateroom shut tight. Huh. He got up, slow and stiff. He felt remarkably good, considering how much he hurt. Last night's flood of endorphins had flushed out of his bloodstream by now, so there was nothing to dull the ache where she'd scratched his shoulders and chest. He shambled to the connecting door and knocked. Knocked again. He looked at the time. 8.23 a.m. She might be at breakfast already. She was. When Knox got to the outdoor dining area twenty minutes later, Mariana, clad in sweats, was sitting at a table sipping orange juice. A magazine sat propped open in front of her, its pages fluttering in the wisps of breeze that managed to circumvent the wind baffles. She returned his good morning without looking up. Uh-oh. Cold gray light of dawn syndrome. Well, if there's no opening, make one. He glanced at the magazine's cover. Fred Prinimato, entrepreneur, the mouthpiece of Russia's right-wing business community. You're Russian really up to that? She made no response, just kept flipping pages, too fast to be reading them. Mariana, what's going on? No, put the magazine down and look at me. John, it happened. Let's leave it at that, okay? Still no eye contact. But... Knox was seldom, if ever, at a loss for words, except around Mariana. Listen, the next time we have a fight, you've got to tell me so I can at least attend. She was standing by this time, 
still looking past him. She looked beautiful in her sweats, her face still flushed from her morning workout. She looked beautiful in anything and nothing. She said quietly, We're not going to talk about it now. She met his eye then, flashed him one of her endearing back-off-or-I'll-break-your-arm looks, and walked over to the aft rail. Mariana stood looking out at, but not seeing, Rusalka's churning wake. She wasn't being fair. It wasn't John's fault she'd gone off the deep end last night. That damned countermeasures recording had pushed her over the edge. And when the rush hit, John was just the nearest body equipped with a phallus. All her training and experience taught her to use whatever tools were to hand. She'd gone and done so. If only she hadn't been so damned horny to begin with. Had to have been that close call with Grecian in the lab. There were studies about that in the literature, weren't there? Post-imperilment euphoria, they called it? P-I-E? Pi for short? Shared danger triggers the reproductive urge and it's wham-bam, thank you, Sam. If the acronym fits, wear it. She certainly felt as if she had pie all over her face this morning. Shit, shit, shit! The worst part was, she'd been starting to like the guy. Liked the way he'd kept his cool and run that conversational riff on Sasha last night. Saved both their butts, most likely. Not to mention the chutzpah it had taken to send Yuri out for tea. And he'd wanted to go on the raid itself in her place. Him, trying to protect her. Silly, but sweet. Three weeks back in D.C., and all this would be a fading memory. Her problem, their problem, was to get through the next three days. No way could she deal with this now. She had to stay focused on the job at hand. Keep things on a professional level. And on that level, she needed him. For somebody who'd started out the quintessential fifth wheel, he'd made himself surprisingly useful. Especially that little pattern trick he did. She needed his input. Bad choice of words. She needed his perspective on the data she'd gathered last night. Once she'd sorted it out, she could see there was no help for it. She'd just have to set her feelings aside, or keep them in check, not sure which, for the duration. She turned and walked back to the table, where John was sullenly perusing the pages of Predprinimato. Knox had to keep reminding himself it had only taken Mariana fifty minutes to reconnoiter the secret lab. You'd never know it from how much of the morning her interminable post-mortem had already chewed through. Of course, it would have gone faster if she hadn't insisted on freeze-framing the damned video every time another damned line of Cyrillic scrolled across another damned workstation screen, or on having Knox squint and translate the barely legible text. But try telling her that. His eyes were watering in earnest by the time they got to the end, but he sat up and took notice nonetheless. Mariana had saved the best for last. And here's the final sequence. Grecian, puzzling out that message on the cylinder, he said as she switched to the footage she'd shot from hiding. The presentation concluded with the still of the cryptic inscription itself glowing purple against the whiteboard in the UV light of Mariana's pocket flash. Paimka 3VIII2247. Show over. Mariana retreated back to the armchair in the far corner of the stateroom. Knox got the feeling that, 
if this meeting could have been held from the opposing baselines of Rusalka's indoor tennis court, she'd have opted for that. She sat erect in her corner chair, dressed in black jeans and a Hamilton College sweatshirt. Prim, proper, knees locked tight together, not the slightest whiff of languor. She was talking to him, at least, but she'd raised shields again. Back to day one, cool, neutral, businesslike. A normal client relationship, really. It was the last few days that had been atypical, to say nothing of last night. Best not to think about that now. Focus on the business at hand. What's so important that Grishin couldn't wait to find it out? You tell me. What does Payinka mean, anyway? Knox sighed, playing Russian etymologist again. It's a noun derived from the verb poimats. You mean to understand? No, wait, that's panimats. Poimats means uh, to catch, right? Uh-huh. Thanks. Thanks for that. And for all the interpreting, John. Good job. De nada. Not my usual line of work. No more so than the rest of this assignment. But what the hey, Archon is a full-service consulting agency. So it would be the act of catching or capturing or something? She was back to business. Capture about sums it up. But capture what and how? Let's see. He glanced over at the laptop screen, but it had gone dark at the end of the sequence. The date was tomorrow? Yep. 10.47 p.m. Midway through Galena's regular evening shift, given we'll be on Azor's time by then. Too much of a coincidence. That lab has to be involved somehow. Too bad there aren't any surveillance signals to tap into, like in the chart room. Yes, but I'm beginning to see why not. And it isn't lax security like I thought. Mariana was talking more to herself than him. Whatever's going on is so super secret, Grishin doesn't trust anybody else to tend to it. Has to go and do it himself. So it's for sure he doesn't want to go broadcasting images of it all over the boat. You could probably count the number of people who know what's going on down in that lab on the fingers of one hand. Forget who knows about it. The question is, how do we find out about it? You didn't by any chance leave one of your spy eyes behind last night. Couldn't. Too much chance of it being spotted. You saw how bright it was in there. I did manage to bug their LAN, but that's not going to be much use in real time. We'd have to reverse-engineer their inter-process communications protocols first, if we even can. What's our alternative? Simple. Deploy a full video recorder in the lab just before this capture business is set to start, then extract it afterwards. She'd started thinking aloud again. I'll need darkness for both. So we're talking 9, 9.30 p.m. for the insertion earliest. An hour before the balloon goes up? That's cutting it kind of close, isn't it? I don't like the thought of you going down there even one more time, much less twice in an evening. Can't be helped. Sure it can. Can't we access your land bug remotely? Of course. Hell, Pete could fire it up from his desk in Chantilly via satellite downlink. What's stopping us, then? Don't tell me the transmissions aren't encoded. Mariana emitted a ladylike snort. Hello? Would it help if I told you the manufacturer's initials were NSA? 
It comes standard with the latest in spread-spectrum pseudo-encryption, transmits each successive bit on a different frequency across a range of several megahertz. The receiver's got to be precisely synced, or all you hear is noise. Where's the problem, then? Like I said, it won't give us near the amount of information that video would. We can't sit here on our hands with God knows what all going down and no way to surveil it, agreed? Would it matter if I said no? Not really. So that's it, then. The spy eye goes in at, say, nine tomorrow evening and comes back out at midnight. That's going to mean two stakeouts on the bridge for you, or one really long one. How's your Russian holding up? Plenty of chance to practice at the party tonight. To celebrate the inception of Rusalka's summer research program, Arkady Grishin had decreed a formal banquet be held. With the ship's complement still halfway synced to U.S. East Coast time, Grishin had indulged his own nocturnal predilections. Cocktails and zakuski would be served at eleven, dinner would commence at the stroke of midnight, and the revelry was to continue till dawn. Knox, who had spent a summer in Spain as a young man and grown to love the late evening dinners in the open-air cafes of Madrid, was up for it. His kind of party. Mariana had packed her own evening gown, but Knox had just taken Crom's potluck formal wear. He was still peering dubiously at the paisley cummerbund reflected in the full-length mirror when Mariana walked in through the connecting door. You ready, John? He turned to look at her and kept on looking. She wore an ankle-length halter gown of black silk knit, its high neckline, only her shoulders were exposed, accentuating her long neck and upswept hair. The demureness of the cut stood in marked contrast to the way the fabric itself clung to her curves. A single wide gold cuff adorned her left wrist. Like it? It's a Donna Karan. Beautiful. But DKNY is not what comes to mind when I think of government-issue evening wear. It isn't. Government-issue, that is. I've got a rainy day trust fund I dip into when Khaki threatens to take over my wardrobe altogether. Set to go? She turned toward the door. Did you remember to turn off the water pick? Knox said, then stopped. He became aware his mouth was hanging open. I can see why you didn't want tan lines, he managed. There was no back to her dress. With the single exception of the halter strap around her neck, all there was to be seen from crown to coccyx was Mariana. From the rear, it looked as if she had just stepped from her bath and wrapped a black towel around her rump, just barely around her rump. The lamplight caressed her smooth-muscled, perfect skin. And she had him on a strict look-but-don't-touch regimen, a torment to almost make him believe in reincarnation. Knox simply hadn't done enough mean, rotten things in his current lifetime to merit such punishment. Ready? Knox was still looking at Mariana as he held one of the banquet hall's outsized French doors open for her. Time to see what kind of a shindig the world's third richest Russian throws. Then he turned to see what lay beyond and fell silent. Rusalka's banquet hall was as wide as the vessel's twenty-meter beam and nearly double that span in length. To either side, marble colonnaded walls, their intercolumniations all of tempered glass, rose up and up, two full deck heights, the skylights opening out on the evening heavens. From gimbaled fixtures in the munions of those skylights, 
there descended six starburst chandeliers of the same Austrian crystal as graced New York's Metropolitan Opera, save that these had been fitted with gyro-stabilizers for use aboard ship. The chandelier's subdued radiance blended with the glow of the skies above them, the stars of a summer night, with six galaxies hovering closer than the rest. The far wall, a hundred feet away across the hall, was a single concave expanse of luminescent onyx veneer, bonded to backlit Nomex substrate, with a huge replica of the now-familiar GEI world snake coiled at its center. Unlike its mosaic counterparts elsewhere on Rusalka, this Ouroboros was three-dimensional and moving. Its great scales flashed as it sank fangs into its own tail, closing the loop around a slowly spinning, cloud-mottled globe. An enormous hologram, beneath which Grecian held court from a raised dais, smiling benevolently out over the throngs of senior corporate staffers and researchers that constituted GEI's latter-day service nobility. Veteran of the occasional power lunch at the Four Seasons that he was, Knox was still frankly dazzled. In Xanadu did Kublai Khan a stately pleasure-dome decree, he recited to Mariana. Where Alf, the sacred river, ran, she recited right back at him, through caverns measureless to man, down to a sunless sea. Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Mariana had nailed it all right, as she did most of his references. Where was he going to find another woman like this, now that he'd gone and lost this one? Yeah, Xanadu. He didn't quite succeed in keeping a note of plaintiveness out of the rest of his reply. Just rotten luck that old Sam got himself interrupted in the middle of that beautiful opium dream. Now it's gone for good. No way to ever get it back again. If she read his intended meaning, she chose not to acknowledge it. They moved out onto the parquet dance floor, where pseudo-glitterati swayed to the strains of Strauss waltzes and the rhythms of Motown shags, both equally foreign, hence equally cultured to Russian sensibilities. Traversing the periphery of the crowded space, Mariana left a swirl of male admirers in her wake. Khrushchev's old dictum about humanity's face being more beautiful than its backside could have claimed few adherents among his countrymen here tonight. Mariana and Knox found silver place markers embossed with their names at settings of Rosenthal China, Baccarat Crystal, and Cartier Silver, all incised with the serpentine GEI crest. Beyond the tableware, an expanse of damask tablecloth sported a row of golden candelabras, each rising out of a Steuben crystal bowl filled with fresh orchids helicoptered in from the Azores that morning. They also found Sasha, resplendent in a custom-tailored summer tux, chatting up the Grecian Enterprise's CFO and her escort. Sasha held Mariana's chair as, carefully, so as to reveal no more than Donna Karan had intended, she took her seat. He then sat down beside her and began spinning yarns of grad school days in Soviet-era Moscow, including several starring knocks that were better left forgotten. With this tete-a-tete in full swing beside him, Knox was left to his own devices. He would have struck up a conversation with the dinner companion to his right, but that chair remained empty, even as the clock chimed midnight. A breathless Galena arrived just before the first course. Sorry to be so late, John. 
only stopped to work an hour ago and took time to dress. Knox rose. The results are well worth the wait, he said, and truly they were. Galena was wearing a short royal blue sequined dress with spaghetti straps, its fit complementing her legs and bosom simultaneously. Still, I definitely need to talk to Sasha if he's got you working this hard on vacation. Oh, no. He's not work, really. He's, what you call it, labor of love. He seemed elated about something. Giddy, almost. Sounds fascinating. I'd love to hear about it. With the suddenness of a cloud passing over the face of the sun, Galena's exhilaration morphed into a feminine version of Sasha's sly, let's-not-go-there look. Time to change the subject again. She beat him to it. Min, she said with a sadder smile. Always talking of work. Never of important things. Of family. Knox shrugged. There's not much to tell. I got married about five, six years ago. Didn't take. Why is this? Lots of things. Started out okay. Turned into a disaster. In the end, we just decided to pull the plug. You know... The second law of data processing. When in doubt, reboot. Galena looked blank for a moment then. Ah, yes. Reboot. Restart computer. Is second law serious? She frowned. If so, then what is first law of data processing? Never put your tongue on a power supply. That got the laugh he was hoping would ease them off this uncomfortable topic but Galena was not so easily sidetracked. Children? she asked. No, thank God. Divorce is complicated enough as it is, without custody and visitation rights to contend with. Children not complication, John. Children whole purpose of life. My advice, have little boy, little girl, before too late. She glanced over her shoulder, to where Mariana was sitting immersed in conversation with Sasha, then looked him in the eye. Not too late for you yet, I think. She read something in his expression then. Or, you two are having fight, perhaps? Was it that obvious? To tell you the truth, Galina, I'm not sure what it is we're having. Nothing good, that's for sure. Where was the pattern in all the rained-out relationships of the past few years? And how had he managed to screw up yet another one before it even got started? But what about you, Galia? he said, as much to get off this subject as anything. I don't see any little ones tugging at your apron strings. Her reaction seemed out of all proportion to his words. Her face crumpled. Tears started forth from her eyes. Not possible, she said between sobs. He sat there feeling helpless watching her silently weep. Galena, what's wrong? Ah, John, she mastered herself with visible effort. Had possibility to have such little one, as you say, was already growing inside me, but was too neodobna, too inconvenient, too busy with researches, too little money, and abortions free in state clinics. Galena sobbed again. How could I know? How could I guess this was only chance? Was coming infection and then, and then no more possibility. Ever.
The dessert service had been cleared away, replaced by champagne and vodka, magnums of Louis Rodera Cristal alternating with liter bottles of Stelichnaya double X. Galina was already on her third round of the latter, evidently intent on drowning old sorrows in liquefied good cheer. Moving with what seemed exaggerated caution, the waiters brought in the salonie, little salty snacks that served as indispensable accompaniment to any serious Russian drinking party. Intricately engraved silver trays were set before the guests, five to a table. On each tray, three small silvery mottled boats, freighted with beluga caviar, sailed round and round on a bed of mist. Knox found the small portion sizes a bit out of keeping. He would have expected Grecian to dole out row by the tubful. He looked closer. The silver receptacles were miniatures of rusalka, dainty as Fabergé eggs, distorted laterally to increase their caviar cargo capacity. Further down the table, a gaggle of geophysicists had begun whispering excitedly to one another. Something to do with the fish egg carriers. Knox peered, blinked, rubbed his eyes. The little rusalkas were floating on... were floating on... were floating on nothing. He bent to bring his eyes level with the tabletop, looked again. There was half an inch of untroubled air between the keel of each mini rusalka and the mist rising off a bed of crushed ice. Knox straightened again to look into Galina's slightly unfocused eyes. She giggled. The background whispering was rising to a general hubbub, spreading out to fill the room. You knew, Knox accused Galia. You knew this was coming and you didn't tell me. He couldn't believe it. This was still years off. Decades, even. Wasn't it? He reached across the table and gently nudged one of the Lilliputian rusalkas with an index finger. It felt cold, but no colder than the ice beneath it. It bobbled, then floated serenely away, unsupported. Incredible. Room temperature superconductivity. Is this it? He raised his voice over the growing clamor. What you're working on, I mean? No, John. This what I working with. She laughed over loud at his puzzlement and finished with a hiccup. All around them, people were beginning to clap their hands, to pound the tables, to clink silverware against crystal in unison. Then they were rising to their feet, stamping, whistling, shouting, Urah! calling for Arkady Grigorievich. With a show of reluctance, Grishin stood and accepted the plaudits of the assembled multitude. Champagne corks exploded with the precision of a fusillade, and he raised his glass. Dear friends and associates, it is my privilege to welcome you to the Rasalka Institute's summer research program. May this year's efforts on behalf of science and all mankind be crowned with success. Grishin set his glass down. He had given his toast in English, but now he switched back to Russian. To his left, Knox could hear Sasha translating for Mariana as the GEI chairman spoke. Some of you We'll have been wondering at the unusual Salonia servers which adorn our tables this evening, courtesy of Grecian Enterprises Material Sciences Division. He paused to acknowledge scattered uras before going on. For those among us who, like me, a small self-deprecatory smile, have not the slightest inkling how this miracle has been accomplished, our resident materials magicians 
have been kind enough to prepare this brief explanation. Grishin donned half-glasses and began reading from a small placard in his right hand. Since the discovery of the Meissner effect in 1933, it has been well known that magnetism cannot penetrate a superconductor. Picture the lines of magnetic force surrounding a bar magnet. They emerge from one pole and wrap around to enter the other in a series of concentric loops. Since this magnetic field cannot pass through a superconductor, the magnet itself is forced to rise high enough above the superconducting surface to allow room for its field lines. The result is magnetic levitation. A magnet will float above a superconductor, or vice versa. At the outset, the Meissner effect could only be observed in liquid helium superconductors at a temperature within 10 degrees of absolute zero. Then, advances in crystallography and ceramics in the late 1980s made possible materials that superconduct at liquid nitrogen temperatures, 77 degrees above zero Kelvin. Still, magnetic levitation remained largely a phenomenon confined to the laboratory. Now, GEI research has fabricated alloys which superconduct at the temperature of frozen water, nearly 200 degrees warmer, ushering in an era of superconductivity for the masses, superconductivity within reach of any household refrigerator. This breakthrough makes possible resistanceless electrical circuitry for power storage and transmission, maglev trains and other transportation, medical diagnostics of unprecedented accuracy, and, not incidentally, Grishin set down his notes and grinned genially around the room, the little superconducting rusalkas that levitate your caviar to you tonight. He smiled at the renewed applause. Knox joined in the encomium. Well, and why not? Even in the Soviet era, the Russians had had a world-class metallurgical and materials research program. This latest advance, while breathtaking, was perhaps predictable. With the rest of the room, he lifted his full glass of vodka and drained it, Russian-style, in a single swallow. Now the champagne and vodka began to flow in earnest, as guest after high-ranking guest rose to extol the achievements of Grecian enterprises and the virtues of its CEO. Russians never needed much of an excuse to tie one on, and Grecian had given the crowd two excellent pretexts. The inauguration of the summer research season, coupled with the unveiling of the miniature marvels of almost room-temperature superconductivity, had induced a state bordering on euphoria at the crowded banquet tables. Before embracing Christianity in the year 988 CE, Prince Vladimir of Kiev had rejected Islam by reason of its doctrine of total abstinence. Drinking is the joy of the Russes, the Chronicle of Ancient Years quotes him saying, we cannot exist without that pleasure. The revelers certainly seemed intent upon proving the wisdom of the good prince's words tonight. With the party now in full swing, Arkady Grigoryevich Grishin left the Olympus of his days to walk amongst mere mortals. A new wave of toasts began propagating down Knox's own table, prompted by Grishin's arrival at its head. 
Then Galina was standing up, perhaps a trifle more unsteadily than warranted by the residual pitch and roll of the hyperstabilized vessel. She raised her glass. To our host, our leader, our dear Arkady Grigorievich, future winner of Nobel Prize. Arkady Grigorievich. Voices in various stages of inebriation echoed the refrain throughout the banquet hall. Zanashevo Spasitelia. Excuse, please, to our savior, savior of children, of whole entire world. Galina was on a roll now. With Arkady Grigorievich to lead, very soon now we catch the, we cage the, her English having chosen this crucial juncture to desert her altogether, she blurted out in Russian, Tunguski Vordalak. That was trowling it on a bit thick. Savior of the world. Chalk that one up to the vodka. Then Knox noticed Grecian's eyes. They had gone cold and hard over a smile held too long. What in Gallia's tipsy hyperbole could have brought that on? What was that thing that she'd said at the end there? Something about catching or caging us something? The message on Grecian Cylinder the other night had said something about catching, too. But catching a Tunguski Vordalak? What, pray tell, might that be? Knox listened for Sasha's whispered simultaneous translation, but none was forthcoming. He tried to suppress the effects of several glasses of vodka long enough to think this through. The Tunguski part was easy. It referred to Tunguska, one of the most godforsaken places in all of Siberia. Actually, that might be aiming too low. One of the most godforsaken places on earth was more like it. Knox's long-ago Soviet ethnography survey course had touched upon Tunguska, as briefly as possible. Hundreds of thousands of square miles of empty wilderness, infested with reindeer, bears, wolves, and, in the mercifully brief summers, mosquitoes the size of lapdogs. But a vordalak? Not one of your garden-variety Russian words, that's for sure. Something out of folklore, maybe? He rummaged through musty mental storehouses of Russian vocabulary, unused low these twenty years. When it finally came, inspiration flowed from an unlikely source. Knox yielded to no man in his encyclopedic knowledge of movie trivia, and he seemed to recall an early 1960s spaghetti horror trilogy, including an episode entitled The Vordalak, starring Boris Karloff. It was about, about, let's see, about some sort of Slavic ghoul or vampire or werewolf. The werewolf of Tunguska? Knox looked up. The awkward moment had passed. Grishin was his affable self again, applauding and complimenting a blushing Galina on her splendid, if undeserved, toast. Mariana was acting as if nothing had happened. They all were. Knox put the thought aside and rejoined the party. But deep down in the subcortical recesses of Jonathan Knox's onboard pattern-matching device, Tunguska was ringing a bell. An alarm bell. You've been listening to Singularity by Bill DeSmet.